years before I presented it to the public. Now, my basic thesis is that this is really a religious battle that we see in the world today, this attempt to wipe out Israel. It's not a political battle, it's really a religious one, and that's why I entitled it The Attempt to Destroy Israel, The Evil Plan of Satan, Marxist, and Jihadist. My overall thesis is that Satan and the demonic realm want to make God a liar, and their doctrines proceed from the demonic realm to human beings, and that there is a coalition between Marxist and Islamic jihadists who see one another as enemies, and yet we as believers are a greater enemy. And as the old saying goes, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how the Marxists and the jihadists look at one another. And so their common goal is to make God a liar, to wipe out the nation of Israel, and to, of course, eradicate the United States as well. So with that, I want to talk about this battle against the nation of Israel. And I want to begin by mentioning my thesis here is that Marxism is really a religion. It's a religion in which utopia is promised and the role of the government is going to bring about this utopia and it's going to do so by taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. Now, the technical term that Marx used for the haves was what he referred to as the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie was the business owner, they were the wealthy, the proletariat was the worker, the working class. That was the Marxist dialectic. However, over time, from 1848 all the way to today, many nations had a rise because of capitalism of the middle class. And so it was hard to divide the middle class from the worker or from the owner because the middle class was doing so well, especially in America. So what Marxists did in the 19th century, and you can see this, um, I'm sorry, actually in the 20th century, I mean the 1900s, you can see this from Cloward and Piven. These were two professors in the 1960s who wanted to see America divide over race and gender. Why? Because they weren't dividing over class. But nonetheless, what you have to see, let me pull up my pointer, is this religion, and yes, Marxism is a religion, it is a real faith, and you'll see that is so evident throughout this presentation. The haves and the have-nots are whatever the Marxists define them to be. So the haves now are really defined as those who are oppressors, and the have-nots are those who are oppressed. Did anyone see the testimony, oh, I think it was last week, when the House Committee had these professors who were, actually they were provosts of these leading intellectual institutions like Harvard, and you heard them not want to say that the attack on Israel verbally was an assault on their code of conduct. They weren't willing to admit that. Why? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, if you're on campus, Israel and America are seen as the haves, and in the Mideast, whether it's Qatar, whether it's Saudi Arabia, it doesn't matter where it is, they're considered the have-nots. Now, by the way, Saudi Arabia sits on, I think, $41 trillion to the plus, while we're $33 trillion in the negative. But don't let those facts confuse you. We are still seen as the haves, and they are the have-nots. Jews are also seen through the construct of being white. 
And anything white in America is evil. Years ago, I knew a man, his name was Tom Berkowitz. He was a leader of an evangelical Bible study. He was a Messianic Jew. And it dawned on me one day that he was the most hated man in the world. Number one, he was an American. Number two, he was white. Number three, he was male. Number four, he was straight. Number five, he was evangelical and he was Jewish. You can't get any more hated than that. But that's the hierarchy of this intersectionality that the left has imposed on our culture. And so because of that, the Jews are seen as the oppressor and the poor Palestinian is seen as the oppressed. Everything is seen through that. Every single thing. So normal morality, you and I say, wait a minute, one side attack the other. The old saying is if the... Palestinians put down their weapons, there'd be peace tomorrow. If the Jews put down their weapons, they'd be all annihilated. That's exactly true. You and I see that, but they don't care why, because everything, everything in their religion is seen through this prism. And as soon as you are labeled the oppressor, as the Israelites have, then you're forever the enemy of the Marxists. That's the way it is. Um, how many in here have ever heard of Dennis Prager? Dennis Prager studied at Columbia University. He actually learned Russian. He was an expert in Marxism and wrote a book on anti-Semitism. And one thing he pointed out is that after World War II, what the capitalist world really learned from World War II was that we have to fight evil. The Marxist, what they learned is that all fighting is evil. Let me show you what I mean by that. In the Bible, the role of government is to restrain evil. That's the role of it. That's the whole goal, is to protect its citizenry. That is not the goal of the Marxists who now run the United States. Their goal is not to protect the citizen. They don't have Genesis 9-6 and Romans 13-4 as part of their worldview. Remember Romans 13-4 says the government does not bear the sword in vain? Meaning what? Meaning that they can use it. So the role of government to the Marxist is different. Because of their religion, they believe the role of government is to redistribute wealth. So think about the two R's. The actual design of government, according to the Bible, is to restrain evil. Marxists say, no, we have to redistribute wealth. How many in here have ever heard of the organization Code Pink? Many of you have heard of Code Pink. Code Pink is a Marxist organization. Back during the Gulf War, they were anti-war. Uh, during the second Gulf War, they were anti-war. But all of a sudden, when the Palestinians murdered 1,400 Jews on one day, they weren't so against that. That use of weaponry, in their view, was justified. In fact, listen from their own website, Code Pink, a Marxist organization. They said this. It's this is right on their website. They have different political issues, and it says, quote, Palestine. They say, Israel's occupation and annexation of Palestine isn't just cruel and inhumane. It's illegal under international law. Join us in demanding justice, equality, and freedom for the Palestinian people. Listen to what they say about China. China's another issue that's near and dear to their heart. They say, quote, If we are to collectively confront climate change, global inequality, and other existential threats, we must cultivate peace with China. China is not our enemy, unquote. This is all on the front page of Code Pink. Here's the point. Code Pink and the Marxists really aren't against violence. They just never wanted the United States violence to be directed towards Marxists or what they consider to be the have-nots. But as soon as violence is directed towards Israel or it's directed towards you, they are really fine with it. Yes, Scott. Uh, maybe it would be helpful if you 
I got to get you dialed in. Okay. Um, the Palestinian thing. Is it, hold on. Just, just uh, briefly go over the Palestinian thing. As far as the just lie the, of it. Yes. Well, I think most of you know that Palestine itself never existed as a nation. The term Palestine comes from Philistia, and that's the region along the Gaza Strip that were the mortal enemies of the Israelites. Remember David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Well, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, this is around 132 AD, there was a wicked Roman emperor named Hadrian. He wanted to wipe out the memory of the Jews, and so he named the entirety of Israel Philistia, which when he turned it into the Latinized term, it ends up becoming Palestine. So Palestine itself, the term, is designed as an anti-Semitic term to label the nation of Israel by its mortal enemy to wipe out their memory. That's the idea. That's the idea behind Palestine. And so anytime you see the reference to Palestine, just think of yourself, the term itself is really anti-Semitic. Yes? That's exactly right. Yep. How many here have ever heard of Black September? Black September was a terrorist organization. The PLO took over after that. Black September started when the Jordanians kicked out all of the Palestinians that were supposed to reside in the Transjordan area. See, Transjordan was set up as the area that the quote-unquote Palestinians were to live, but King Jordan expelled them. He never wanted them. In fact, just recently, it's probably three, four weeks ago, the King of Jordan says he did not want any of the Palestinians from the Gaza Strip in his land. So think about, you have a king who is a dictator who has far better sense than most of the politicians that you and I have the opportunity to vote for. Why? Because letting terrorists into your nation is never a good idea. But here's the point. Black September was an organization that became a terrorist organization as a result of what the Jordanians did to the Palestinians. But who did Black September attack? The Jews. They blamed the Jews. The PLO became the result of Black September. Do you remember the Munich assault in 1972? That was a year before I was born. Well, that was Black September. And so isn't it interesting, it wasn't the Jordanians who were murdered because of the Jordanians expelling the Palestinians. Even though that was part of the UN partition plan, it was actually the Jews who had to pay. That's how anti-Semitic the world really is and how God's chosen are really, in fact, hated. Now, why do I say they're chosen? Because remember, God has promises for a national restoration of Israel. The reason this is so important in my eschatology class is because you have preterists. Remember, most post-millennialists are preterists. They believe that Christ's coming happened in 70 AD. They don't believe there's any promises for Israel. Well, if you hold to that view, then you can't make any sense of what's going on around you because the world has always hated Israel and the attack on Israel proves it. There have been Amalekites, Jebusites, uh, Hittites, Horites, you know, all of the ites. Remember the old joke is there was even termites. The Canaanites, they're all gone, but there are still Israelites. Why? Because God has promises that he has made for them. So let me just show you what I think is the ultimate battle then is between the haves and the have-nots. And I think we can say this is also a spiritual battle. The ultimate haves in the world are all, all those people who believe upon Jesus Christ 
and have the promises. Bob one time astutely said that the moment you and I believed in Jesus Christ, we are not only grafted into the promises of Israel, but we are also grafted into their persecutions. And so what I'm claiming is that this Marxist dialectic of always hating and attacking the haves is really being used spiritually by demonic forces to attack believers and the people of Israel. Why? Because if the people of God are wiped out, God becomes the liar. He doesn't preserve the remnant as he has claimed he would do. He, hasn't, he will not bring about his promises as he's claimed to do. And so we see this attack all the way back on the haves by the have-nots back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Remember, here is the murder of Abel by Cain. Notice here what the Lord said to Cain. It said, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? What's the obvious answer to that rhetorical question? Of course he would. If he offered, that is Cain, offered his sacrifice in faith, it would have been accepted as well. The issue wasn't the two different types of sacrifices. The problem with Cain is he did not offer it in faith. Notice it says, it says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Notice verse 8, it said, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Very interesting, the hatred of Abel is really a hatred of one who was a have by a have not. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 11, verse 4. I want you to see that, yes, indeed, Abel's brother Cain, who murdered him, murdered him because of this jealousy. And I want you to see that Cain's real sin was not that, again, he had a different type of uh, vocation or that he had a different type of sacrifice to offer. What separated Cain from Abel was that Cain didn't believe. Abel was a believer. Cain was an unbeliever. That's what distinguished the two. Notice Hebrews 11.4. Now remember in Hebrews 11, it's all about how we persevere by faith. It's the hall of fame of faith. And so here, Abel's used by God as a really a figurehead of what it looks like to believe. Notice here it says, Hebrews 11:4. by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The idea then is his, the concept that comes from Abel is that because he believed in the promises of God, he was justified and therefore his offering was acceptable to God. Fast forward to the time of the Mosaic Covenant. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord can tell the Israelites that he will no longer receive their sacrifices. Well, you have to ask yourself, wait a minute, why is that? Because didn't the Lord command that they would offer their sacrifices? He certainly did. But the issue is if these sacrifices were not offered in faith, they were offered in vain. So an Israelite could sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice all the way through the Old Testament time period under the Mosaic Law and never be justified before God. Just as someone can sit under the means of grace, they can partake of the Lord's Supper, they can be baptized, they can go through all those things and yet not be justified because they don't have faith. It's always faith that saves. Yes, Linda. Would that also include of what Abraham, 
Abel did the sacrifice of the lambs, like that there was also a knowledge that there had to be a blood sacrifice versus like Cain did what he wanted to do by just taking the vegetables or the... Yeah, you know... Um, part of that. Yeah, the way I look at it, Linda, is we're not explicitly told that, but what we are told here, I think, in Hebrews is that by faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. So I don't think the difference between Cain and Abel is one of vocation. Right, but, but what I mean by that is one had this type of sacrifice and one had this kind of sacrifice. I don't think that that's necessarily the issue. The issue is whether it was offered in faith. Yeah. Well, there's also an option after the fact. Yes. <laughs> that, that he refused. Yes. God offered him, told him. The knowledge of what God would accept came after the fact. And there was still an option. If you look at it, doesn't it? Yes. Amen. Yeah, That's exactly see. what we saw here yeah. in Genesis 4, 6 through 8. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's already, it's the point is you won't respond to what God said because you're so angry he didn't do it your way. Right. So whether or not, we don't have any word that the sacrifice had to be of a certain kind. If that were stated in the text, then we would say, yes, that was the issue. Whatever it was, we know it was a lack of faith. He didn't offer his sacrifice in faith. Abel did. That's the core issue, I think. And um, turn your Bibles to another passage, 1 John 3, 12 through 13. 1 John 3, 12 through 13. I wanted to show you here in this text the hatred that Cain had for his brother Abel. And again, this hatred, I believe, of the ultimate halves the ultimate halves being those who have the forgiveness of sins and the blessing of God, it really shows that there's been a battle between the haves and the have-nots right from the beginning. And again, I think Marxism is just a demonic religion that really focuses people on hating the haves. And if the ultimate haves are those who have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you can bet that that doctrine is going to be turned against us and it's being turned against Israel. That's my claim. 1 John 3, 12, notice it says, John writes, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, what is, stop right there. What does it mean that he was of the evil one? It means he was characterized by, he was a follower of, he belonged to that father of the lie that is Satan. So he was of the evil one, therefore what? He murdered his brother. Remember, Jesus says Satan was a murderer from the beginning, right? So notice it says, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Stop there. Notice in verse 12, why did he hate his brother? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, being that his brother's deeds were righteous, he had the forgiveness of sins. He was the ultimate have. But Cain, because he was under the curse, was in fact the have not. Notice 1 John 3.13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If you and I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become the ultimate have. We have the forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, and I think the world has a sneaking suspicion that that's indeed true. Remember, as Jesus says when he comes into the world, men love their deeds of darkness, so they flee from the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. In other words, the issue with fallen humanity isn't that they can't understand what the gospel is saying or the Bible is saying. It's that they don't like it. That's the primary rebellion of mankind. It's a moral inability. They hate what the Bible's revealing. And so because of that, they hate us. And so Marxism 
is an institutionalized religion that makes it morally right in the eyes of the unregenerate to hate you, to turn the laws against you, to murder the Jews. Why? Because they're the oppressor. That's the idea that I'm trying to convey. This is a religious battle. Yes, Paul. So we're saying that feeling is stronger than fact? What's that? Feeling is stronger than fact? Is that what we're saying here? Feeling? Is that, is that what we're saying here? What do you mean feeling? I'm sorry. Yep, feeling is stronger than fact. Yeah, are we saying that feeling uh, is stronger than fact? The fact is we have, and the feeling of hatred against it is stronger than fact. Is that true? Uh, am, am I? I'm sorry, I'm not quite following the... <clears throat> no, I, I can hear you. It's, it's, I'm just not understanding the point. So feeling Okay, the is point is, is that um, it's made, made many times that sometimes the same crowd that raised people up as gods and then a few seconds later was going to stone them, that feeling can be so revolutionary and, and convincing... Yes, that I see it, what you're saying. It's, uh, it's against fact. Fact is yeah, no longer there. Yeah, right, right. So the impulse of the unregenerate man their feelings will overtake the rational thought. And I, I, I do agree with that. I think the fall of humankind, because of what Adam did in the garden, affects every aspect of who we are. It affects the way we reason. It affects our bodies. It affects our emotions, our will. It affects all of us, all of our reasoning. My whole point is that I think ultimately the reason why people don't believe isn't primarily an intellectual one, although that's affected by the fall, what I'm claiming is it's primarily an issue of the will. That they know exactly what the Bible is saying and they don't like it. It's not that they can't understand it. It's as if they're reading Chinese and they say, well, I can only understand English. I don't think that that's the inability of man. The inability is they know precisely what we're saying and yet they hate it. So for years when I heard the gospel, I didn't like it. Why? Because that meant I would have to change my life. I would have to submit my knee to the Lordship of Christ. And so I came up with all sorts of excuses. But once I was confronted by the Lord, regenerated by the Spirit, your, intel, your uh, will is broken. And all of a sudden, you come to the end of yourself, all by God's grace, and you realize these things are true. And you repent. Your will is broken. And so what I'm claiming is that the ultimate battle is, yes, oftentimes emotional, but it really is there's a logic to it. That is, if we can wipe out these haves, these people with the blessings of God, we don't have to be tormented in our daily lives. I'm reasoning as the unregenerate by hearing about this gospel, hearing about the promises, hearing about the things we don't have, and hearing about the curses to come upon us. That's how the unregenerate, I think, reasons. So, yeah, Brian. The, the terms have and have nots <clears throat> In a sense, that's true when you apply it to Jesus. You say Christians were the ultimate haves. Yeah. But it's a true statement to say that you either have Jesus or you don't. That's right. So what actually what they're saying, in a sense, is true. Yeah, absolutely. Right. No, we agree that there are haves and have nots spiritually. Absolutely. Our point is that if, just like the Lord said to Cain... If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Well, instead of doing that, instead of repenting, see, we're not saying, hey, you wicked sinners, we're really good people. We didn't need a savior. We're saying, hey, we're wretches. We needed the bread of life, and so do you. So, in other words, our gospel is universal in the sense that all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
it's their own hardness of heart that prevents them from believing. And again, that's what God has to change in regeneration. Yes, Bob. Well, just to reinforce this idea of the hatred and anger that comes toward anybody that's favored by the Lord. Yeah. Look at Joseph and his brothers. Yeah, yeah good, good what example. What exactly did Joseph do to deserve to be hated? Right. And uh, these were all the sons of Israel. Right, right. But he was hated because his father favored him for whatever reason. Yeah. And they, they did all these things to him, threw him in the pit and tormented his father with the idea he'd been torn up by a wild animal. That's right. I got it right. right. Then he ended up in Potiphar's household, was abused by Potiphar's wife, ended up in jail, taken advantage of by a jailer. Wherever he went, went they hated him. They hated until, him. But God had a plan to use Joseph. Amen. And at this particular time, and I appreciate you sharing this perspective, Yeah. Israel isn't right with God. Right. But they still have promises. Exactly. As you so nicely pointed out to us. Yeah. And they're hated just because they have the promises. Exactly. That's right. Just like Joseph was hated before he saw any fulfillment. Right. Right. That's a great point. Yeah, before he saw any fulfillment, that is so well said. Yeah, think about in Genesis 37 when Joseph has the dream of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. And by the way, that's alluded to in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 12. And so he has this dream, and God, as Bob said, is using Joseph providentially for the survival of Israel. Egypt functions like an incubator to protect Israel's survival. And God is using it and orchestrating it, yet as Bob points out, Joseph is absolutely hated. He's absolutely hated in the same way because Israel has future promises in which one day, as it says in Zechariah 12.10, they will mourn for, one, for the one that they had pierced as one mourns for an only child. Remember, it says they will look upon the one whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. That's going to be in the future. So one day they're going to repent. They're going to be restored. What did the disciples ask in Acts 1-6? They asked Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice Jesus didn't say, hey, where'd you get that goofy idea? He says, no, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that are set in my Father's hand, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yes, indeed, there are promises for national ethnic Israel, and if Satan and his minion can wipe them out, they reason they can make God the liar. That's what the battle's ultimately about. In fact, let's show a passage right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. Recall, in Genesis chapter 11, all of the world comes together, the nations, to build the Tower of Babel. We are claiming that is going to occur again in the future. Not the Tower of Babel, but they'll build Babylon again. But recall that God had commanded them to disperse, to be fruitful, and to multiply. But instead, they come together... And they try to establish a new humanity without God, and they become those who worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So what happens then in Genesis chapter 12 is God starts over with a new messianic lineage. It's really his same lineage. It's not going from plan A to plan B, but he reveals that there's going to be a new humanity that's going to lead to the Messiah that comes from Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, don't miss the idea that that comes right after the nations come together to build Babylon. Exactly. Genesis 12, God says, no, it's not through those. It's through this one that I call out. So he calls out Abraham. And notice in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice, first of all, in red, notice when he says, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Yahweh's relationship to the other nations is dependent upon how they treat Abraham and his seed. If there is a, an attack on Abraham and the seed, the Lord will curse them. And I want you to realize that that curse is not always going to be experienced in the world now. In other words, during the church age. But what we are guaranteed is that in the future 70th week of Daniel and into the millennial kingdom, and from there even into the eternal states, this will be rectified. Where indeed, all those who cursed Israel, all those who hated the promises of God, whether it was Cain on, they are going to be those who are cursed. But notice he says in blue, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what's very important here is notice here, shall be blessed. It's very important. This is actually a nifal verb. A nifal verb in Hebrew has to do with either it's reflexive or it's passive. So let's talk about reflexive. It's reflexive. It means middle. I'm doing, I'm dressing myself. Okay, I'm dressing myself. That's reflexive. But if it's passive, um, my mom's dressing me. I'm a little kid. Okay, so passive, it's being done to you. Reflexive, you're doing it to yourself. The debate on this verb is that is it reflexive or passive? It can be either. So some versions will translate this, in you, all the families of the earth will bless themselves. Well, I don't think that that's a valid interpretation. I think clearly this is a divine passive. So the divine passive here is very important because what the Lord is showing us is that he is the one who is going to be giving the blessing. In fact, listen to the great scholar, Victor Hamilton. Years ago when I was in seminary, he wrote a great book on the Pentateuch, and I want to read from it. Hamilton said this, he said, quote, if the verb in question has passive force, which I think obviously it does, then Genesis 12, 3 clearly articulates the final goal in a divine plan for universal salvation. And Abram is the divinely chosen instrument in the implantation of that plan, unquote. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Meaning, every single human being lives or dies on Abraham's seed. Because from Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have Judah, you have David, and then you have the Messiah. It's that lineage. But also, Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, he believes and it's credited to him as righteousness. So not only do we have the physical genealogy coming from Abraham, but he also is the one who believes. He believes and is saved hundreds of years prior to the Mosaic Law ever coming about. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Romans 4, and he shows, yes, salvation's always been by faith. It's never been by works. Never, ever, ever. So in the Old Testament, God wasn't on plan A. In the New Testament, he went to plan B. No, he's always been on plan A. Salvation's always been by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by God's grace alone. And so that's why Jesus can say in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And remember, the Jews say, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you claim to see Abraham. And that's when Jesus says, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. He's Yahweh. He's the eternal one. Absolutely. So, yes, we have to believe like Abraham does, and we have to believe in the one that comes from Abraham. Think about, remember in 2 Samuel 7, it's at the very end around verse 19, David says after he's given the Davidic covenant, he says, Oh, my Lord, 
This is literally Torah instruction for all mankind. Meaning if you don't come to the terms of the gospel, that is that the Messiah is coming from David, it'll be required of you. We're seeing that same thing happening here through Abraham. That yes, if we don't come as Abraham does into the seed that comes from Abraham, it's going to be required of us. That's the idea. And so yes, being blessed is for those who believe. And so being blessed by God, notice on the screen, is a status, not a symptom. Stop there. Why do I say that? Think about, you could be a believer in Jesus Christ. Think about Corey Tanboom. Corey Tanboom's symptoms were not good. She suffered mightily at the hands of the Nazis, did she not? And yet she was still blessed. And unless they repented, they were cursed. So that's what I'm claiming is that it's a status. Bob has done a lot of good teaching over the years on this. It's a status, not a symptom. So every believer is blessed because they have God's favor, which includes the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And no matter what happens to you now, no matter how bad it is, no matter how ill you are, how sick you are, how deprived you are of wherever, if you're in a jail, a, a Turkish jail, and it's the worst day of your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you still are blessed by God. And that's why I don't like when people will say, you'll see commentators write this all the time, they'll say blessing simply means happy. Well, <laughs> there are times when you're not going to be happy. I don't think Corey Tanboom on the run with all the problems she had was always happy and smiling. The idea of happy is true if you mean one day when Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the kingdom and all of his enemies are subdued and you're given your resurrected body, yeah, you're going to be really happy. Amen. That's absolutely true. But the point is it's not based on symptoms. It's based on the status. You and I are positionally reigning with Christ. Now, even though we haven't experienced it, you have the reservation in heaven. It's reserved for you. That's the idea of being blessed. So being cursed by God, again, is also a status and not a symptom. And so the power brokers of this day, whether it's some evil politician who lives high off the hog, and you say, well, wait a minute, they seem to be happy, they seem to be blessed. Well, no, it's not symptomatic. Every unbeliever is cursed because they do not have God's favor. Their sins will be held against them and they will have eternal destruction. The wrath of God abides upon them. That's the idea. And so my big point is that this divide between the spiritual haves and the have-nots motivates hatred towards believers in Israel. Just as Bob said years ago, the moment you and I believed, we were grafted not only into the promises, but the hatred of Israel. Amen. God's love for us makes the unregenerate world hate us. And Jesus says, if you belong to me, you're going to be hated by the world on account for my sake. That's what he promised us. Okay, so God's promises attacked. I want to show you how this begins. To think about the seed of the woman. The very promise in the beginning is that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Now remember, throughout the book of Genesis, the details unfold. The seed of the woman, remember the term is Zerah? It's a collective noun. So it can mean the one and the many. But the focus in Genesis 3.15 is on the one. Okay? So it's going to be one man who's going to come and crush the serpent. And so we see he's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. Genesis 49.10, we see he's going to come from Judah. 2 Samuel 7, he's going to come from David. Then you open up the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy. Lo and behold, Jesus fulfills that genealogy. But right away the attack begins. We just read about Abel 
being murdered by Cain. Why? Because the lineage of the seed is under attack right away. Okay, fast forward to the time of Abraham's battle with four kings. Do you remember in Genesis 14, God had given promises to Abraham? But remember, there was four kings. They were so powerful that they end up wiping out five kings that were against them. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 14? Well, if you recall, Abraham takes 318 men and he wins a battle. Why was that so important? Because the four kings took his nephew Lot. They cursed him. They took a family member of Abraham? They took a family member of Abraham. And so what did the Lord do? Well, he acted on their behalf. Where were they encroaching? They were encroaching on Abraham's promised land. And so what's very interesting is if you look, uh, turn in fact, turn your Bibles here to Genesis 14, 17 through 20. What's so beautiful is Abraham destroys the four kings that could wipe out five other kings, and he does it with 318 men. Well, how did he do that? Well, it was the miraculous intervention of God. God was looking out for his seed. Notice here Genesis 14, 17 through 20. It says, After his return from the defeat of Ketolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Now stop there for just a moment. The king's valley is where the Kidron Valley and the valley of Ben-Hinnom, they, they join together. It's the confluence of those. Now, why is that significant? Well, there's going to be a great eschatological battle there at the end of time, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's where I believe that is. Okay, why is that important? Because you see this battle beginning in Genesis 14 where God delivers Abraham. He's going to do it again in the 70th week of Daniel where the final battle occurs. So that's where this battle is occurring. Notice who comes out. Verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And notice it says, parenthetically, he was a priest of God Most High. Now stop there. Notice Melchizedek comes from Melech, Sadek. Melech means king. Sadek is righteousness. So he's a king of righteousness. And notice it says that he was a priest of God Most High. What's very interesting is this is very much a foreshadowing of the Davidic-like kings that we will later see in David, but ultimately in the Messiah, who are both kings, but they're also priests. They're also prophets, by the way. Okay, why? Because he's not only the king who runs the army of the Lord, as it were, but they're also priests who intercede. So very interesting that this king of righteousness is called that. And notice it says in verse 19, he blessed him and said, so this is Melchizedek blessing Abram. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Stop there. How did Abram win? Was he just a better tactician? No. He only had 318 men. God was the one who delivered four kings who had wiped out five kings. God delivered them to Abraham's hand. And notice it says, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So remember, one of the points that the writer of Hebrews makes is that the greater blesses the lesser. Yes, Christy. Um, I'm just curious when we say blessed be God, yeah. how does that compare to being blessed by God? 
Yeah, so God is blessed in and of himself. And that really ties into something we were talking about, Christy, when we were doing our Wednesday night study a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. We were talking about the aseity of God. The aseity of God has to do with his self-existence. And so God is blessed, and meaning he is the one who is the source of all blessings, but he is also always inherently happy, content, blessed, the source of all life, all within himself. And so he's not blessed in the sense that we added something to him because you and I did something good versus bad, but it's the idea that he is the source of all blessings and he himself because of his aseity, is inherently blessed. Does that make sense? Is it a form of worship? Yes, it absolutely is a form of worship. Absolutely, yes. So it's just ascribing to him what is true. Yeah, absolutely. It's, that's a very good way of saying it. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, that's the key, ascribing to God what is already true. Yes. And I think in the Hebrew, isn't it barakah? Mm-hmm. Okay, and Amen. there's a lot of that in the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord, and then it describes his character, yes. his mighty deeds, his promises. And Amen. the book of Ephesians begins, I think the first 14 verses yes. is a big barakah, or maybe it's 3 through 14. Blessed be the Lord, who has given us a lot, a place of inheritance, who's done these mighty deeds. So it's a very break. Idea of ascribing to God what's already true. That's right. And the people who are willing to do that are the ones who are blessed. Amen. Because most of the world is cursing God. Amen. They do it constantly. It's like, um, Christy, when we say that he's eternal, we're not making him eternal. We're not doing the, he is eternal. We're describing what is true of him. He's eternal without, if I was never alive, he'd still be eternal. But the idea is that as his creature, we have the privilege of ascribing to him what is true. And yes, he is blessed in and of himself in his own being. Yeah, amen. Good, good question. Yeah, Paul. Just to agree with that, I, uh, when we say blessed be God, we're saying we are in alignment with God, who he is, and therefore he gives us his character. Well said. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we're saying that we're in step with him. Absolutely. We're saying, yes, this is true. He's revealed it, and we're affirming it. Absolutely. Yes, well said. So what I'm showing you here thus far is there, there's this battle. And there's an attack on the haves by the have-nots. That's what I'm showing you. So, for example, Isaac. Isaac is born, and the very day that he is weaned, Abraham throws a feast. What happens? Ishmael, the have-not, mocks him. What happens? Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out. Sarah won't tolerate it. There's an attack on Isaac. Fast forward to Jacob and Esau. Jacob, of course, is renamed Israel. Esau attacks him immediately. In fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis 27, 41. And this is a big battle between the haves and the have-nots. Remember, even in Romans, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Genesis 27, 41. Turn your Bibles there. So again, Jacob is the one, by God's grace, he's chosen. He's chosen to be a promised one. From him come the blessings of the Messiah. From him comes salvation. Esau, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Now, does that mean Esau will not be accepted just like Cain wouldn't be accepted if they would do what is right? Well, absolutely. If they would repent and trust in 
the God of Jacob, they would be grafted in as well. But instead, Esau would rather attack Jacob. And that shows us the battle again between the haves and the have-nots. Notice Genesis 27, 41. It says, now Esau hated Jacob. Why? Because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. Stop there. He was a have. And yes, it may have been under suspect circumstances that Jacob received the blessing. And nonetheless, it was certainly God's choice. Yes, Jacob was the heel grabber. And he had pulled some shenanigans. But certainly, he was God's sovereign choice. And notice it says, Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. There you have it. Now, notice I have the book of Obadiah mentioned. Obadiah is about the Edomites. Remember, the Esau descendants become the Edomites. Um, Esau's name means red. Edom means red. So they settle in the place that looks red, the red rock area of Moab. That's where they end up settling. You can see it today where, trans, where Jordan is. That's where they settled. So the, the red guy who sells his birthright for the red stuff ends up in a nation that looks red. <laughs> are, you, are you with me? I mean, there's a lot of play off of words there. That's the Edomites. So yes, the Edomites are the prototypical enemies of God listed in the book of Obadiah. So when the Babylonian destruction comes upon Jerusalem in 586 B.C., there's a nation that helps out the Babylonians, and who is it? It's the Edomites. And God hates the fact that Esau, the brother of Jacob, is attacking Jacob again. And so the Edomites then become the prototypical enemy of God. And that's why you see in Obadiah this watchman who's on a wall, and he sees someone coming from Basra. Basra was the capital of Edom. And what is he? He's dripping with blood. Who is he? He's, it's a picture of the Messiah. And he's going to wipe out the enemies of God at the end. That's what the book of Obadiah is about. It's about God going to wipe out the enemies of Israel who attack Israel, the, the haves, right? Now, let's fast forward to the time of Jesus. Who is Herod the Great? Herod the Great is an Edomian. So Edom ends up transgressing or transversing, I should say, territory from kind of where Petra is. And they end up being down by the Negev, where modern day Hebron is. So those were called Idomeans. So Herod comes from Idomea. What does that mean? That means Herod the Great is a descendant of Esau. So think about it. In Matthew chapter 2, when Herod the Great is trying to wipe out Jesus, Jesus is a descendant of Jacob. Herod the Great is a descendant of Esau. Are you with me? It's the same battle. Who's trying to wipe out Jacob again? A descendant of Esau. You see the battle? So it's the same again. Now, fast forward to Israel today. They're attacked. Turn your Bibles to Luke 21, 24. Luke 21, 24. Jesus here, is, in his all of a discourse, is in a section, from, I believe, from verse 14 all the way to verse 24, where he's talking about 70 AD in the church age. Then he goes back after verse 24 to talk about the last 70th week of Daniel. But he's the only gospel writer that focuses on this time period. So Luke 21, 24. Notice Jesus talking about the 70 AD plus the church age. He says, they will fall, talking about Israel, by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles 
are fulfilled. Does everyone see the until there in that text? The term there, akri, until, cannot be used for a non-event. You know who says so? Bob Dway. <laughs> it's exactly right. I cite him all the time for that. It's exactly right. Bob so told me that once, and it just hit me like a, like a thunderbolt. You cannot have an until for a non-event. Why is that important here? Let's read it again. Notice here, Israel is going to be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That means that there's going to be a restoration. There will be a restoration of Israel. Why? Think about it this way. In Romans eleven twenty six, we have Paul saying that they will be partially hardened until... So the until is used in very key texts. Jesus says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So yes, the until means that there's going to be a time where there's going to be a restoration. So yes, that's what's under attack today. The nations that are trying to wipe out Israel don't want that restoration to take place. Yes, Brian. The discussion we had last week on the preterist and partial preterist this is a great verse to uh, refute that and how it, it seems more like it's building like to a crescendo instead of that already happening or happening or or semi happening you you see the opposite where it keeps through the bible as we've been going through all these god's promises attack it's building 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 rather than already happening you follow what I'm saying? Um, no, I'm sorry. I it, it's kind of building to a crescendo to, to revelation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, yep. Consumation. Absolutely. So the 70th week of Daniel, that's um, what we're waiting for. So we're living in the church age. So notice it says the time of the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, how long are the times of the Gentiles? Anybody have a date? No. No, I don't either. Why? Because Jesus didn't reveal it. That's imminence. That's the doctrine of imminence. You have a certain event. Is Israel going to be restored? Yes. When? What day? You don't know. That's imminence. Certainty of the event, unknowability as to when the event occurs. There's no other event in history that is certain, and yet you don't know when. But we have that with the coming of Christ. That's what leads to the doctrine of imminence. So you and I live in this milieu, this time period in which people are scoffers. I'm dealing with them all the time. These preterists say, oh, you think that Israel's going to be restored? And they scoff at it. They scoff and they mock at it. I'm saying, yes, the until matters. Jesus says, you will not see me again until. He doesn't say you'll never see me again. You, the Israelite leadership, will not see me again until you cry out that I'm the Messiah. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's a messianic psalm. By the way, the one who comes... That dates all the way back to Genesis 49.10. The one who comes, remember it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until the one who comes to whom it belongs. So then fast forward to Isaiah 59.20. There's going to be a redeemer who comes to Zion. Who is that? It's the Messiah. Well, then it's worked into Psalm 118 as they're rededicating the temple. The one who comes is the Messiah. Remember John the Baptist asked the question, are you the one who comes or shall we look for another? Why does he ask it that way? He's using a participle in the Greek. Are you the one who comes? He's asking, are you the Messiah? 
That's what he's asking. So Jesus said, you will not see me again until you declare that I'm the Messiah. But the intel is important. They will do it one day in the future. That's what we're saying. So if we're good readers, we know that there's an expectation of the future restoration of Israel. Why did 1,400 Jews, why were they murdered on October 7th? Because Satan and his minion don't want that promise to come about. They want to make Jesus, the promise giver, a liar. And so that's what the battle's about. Israel's future is going to be redeemed. Revelation 19, it's the Messiah himself who will intervene at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And as all the nations are surrounding Jerusalem, it looks like they're going to be wiped out once and for all. It says in Zechariah 14.4 that he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he'll fight for them as a warrior does in the day of battle. And that will be done. The Messiah will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And all of his promises will be true. All of his promises will come about. But that's what the battle is about. The Marxist attack on the people of Israel is nothing more than something Satan, a doctrine Satan and his minion are using to try to wipe out the promises of God. So you and I are not fundamentally in a political battle. We're in a religious one. I'll be getting into more of this. I just want to show you one thing. Let me fast forward to something right here. Remember I mentioned that BLM is a Marxist organization? And I said that to an individual who didn't want to return after I said that in the Sunday school. But look at after 1,400 Jews were butchered, some of them decapitated with shovels, look at what BLM put up. I stand with Palestine. That's right from them. Why? Because again, the goal of the Marxists is to get rid of God. You can have no other gods other than Karl Marx. There's no other god other than the state under Marxism. And so yes, BLM supports Hamas because they view the Islamic radicals as a means of getting rid of the Judeo-Christian ethic once and for all, and therefore Marx will be God. Now, the jihadists, of course, have a different plan. But again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's how they both reason, whether you're the jihadist or you're the Marxist. The goal is to get rid of Western civilization, to get rid of the United States. Not that we have a covenant with God, but we are a supporter of Israel. And that's why BLM is trying to wipe out the people of Israel. Again, if you can make God a liar. Listen to Patrice Cullors. I'll leave you with this. Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of the BLM, it said this, that the Black Lives Matters co-founder Patrice Cullors said in a newly surfaced video from 2015 that she and her fellow organizers are trained Marxists, making clear their movement's ideological foundation according to a report. Cullors, who's age 36, was the protege of Eric Mann, former agitator of the Weather Underground domestic terror organization and spent years absorbing the Marxist-Leninist ideology that shaped her worldview today, unquote. That's from Breitbart News. So do you think about uh, Eric Mann and the Weather Underground? They were the ones who actually planted a bomb at the U.S. Capitol back in the 1970s. I think it was a couple years before I was born, and they actually detonated a, a bomb, All right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. We'll, we'll come to that, absolutely. But I just wanted you to see that, that yes, this Marxist view of hating the haves and always wanting to support the have-nots leads itself to hating Israel. And you can see it even in BLM's own logo. Okay? So that's what the battle is about. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your promises. We thank you that despite the raging of the world, your son will come and rule and reign upon the earth. 
and that we will reign with him. And we thank you, Lord, that we will be those who rule with your son with a rod of iron over the nations and that your righteousness will stem from sea to sea. We do pray that you would come quickly, Lord. We do want to see the resurrection and all of their blessings and promises that you've given. We pray that we would persevere, that we'd be those who stand for the truth, that we would love even our enemies, that we'd be those who have the gospel upon our lips and boldness in our heart. We pray for Bob as he preaches out of this great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, be with him, give us understanding, help us to learn these things so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.